Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host, Janine Moloff. Well, tonight we're going to have a continuation of some things we've discussed before, and I'm going to apologize for what my voice sounds like ahead of time. Not COVID, just allergies. But um, tonight, especially on this Holocaust Memorial Day, okay, we're also going to be talking about things that are very similar, and that means environmental racism, because whenever there is any attempt to destroy a group of people based on not their actions, but their identity, then we have an evil that has to be dealt with. And one of the first things you do, the first things you do is you shed light on that evil. So once again, we have environmental racism on the agenda. This time we're looking at areas termed as what are called sacrifice zones. Now I'm going to speak to this dire injustice that this kind of concept engenders, both in theory and in practice. In addition to reducing communities of color to throwaway, disposable, or in corporate lingo, sacrifice zones. I'm going to speak to the foul strategies employed by polluters as well as their corporate attorneys against any media group as well that dares to call them out. And the specific example in this episode, after we talk about the sacrifice zones and how it affects uh, different communities, is the case of the water protectors at Standing Rock and the coverage that was received by a media group known as Unicorn Riot. Uh, this involves a SLAP suit, and a SLAP suit, the acronym SLAPP, stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. And these are lawsuits that, frankly, in terms of facts, have no merit. The lawyers bringing these lawsuits know they don't have merit, but it's an attempt to censor activists and journalists as well to intimidate, to censor by basically weighing them down with so much legal uh, legal expenses that they just cave from the pressure. Because let's face it, most of us don't have the bankroll of the average corporation when they employ a corporate army of attorneys. So Unicorn Riot is facing such a slap suit. So listen, prepare to be outraged. Okay, so we're going to start with a spokesperson in my introduction for a group called Progress America. And his name is Mike Seelan. And honestly, he was quoted in a very powerful piece by a journalist named Raynard Loki, who publishes and writes for the Independent Media Institute. I couldn't have said this any better than myself. Um, what Seelan said and what's quoted by Loki was the following, quote, Corporate polluters demand human sacrifices. And he goes on to say, they each have a choice between profits and pollution, and every time they choose profits. It says it right there. Corporate polluters demand human sacrifices. I go a little farther and say, not just human sacrifices, but the sacrifice of the animal kingdom and this planet itself. So this segment is about environmental racism, specifically involving what is viewed in this hyper-capitalist society as disposable people or disposable communities. In addition, we will talk about the slap suit as a strategy 
and how that's affecting a media group known as the Unicorn Riot. So we're going to start with a piece that's a little older, actually. In the Atlantic, there was a piece written by Van R. Newkirk in 2018. And the headline is, Trump's EPA concludes environmental racism is real. And note, you're not, you're not hallucinating that I made that statement. Okay, that is actually the headline. Trump's EPA concludes environmental racism is real. And the subtitle is, a new report from the Environmental Protection Agency finds that people of color are much more likely to live near polluters and breathe polluted air, even as the agency seeks to roll back regulations on pollution. So we're not actually uh, defending Trump at all, hardly. But this is what Trump EPA, they were rolling back the regulations. And this speaks to the idea of deregulation as well. I mean, what is rule of law? Let's get a little real here. Regulation is part of rule of law. That's what rule of law is. Rules, regulations. If you deregulate an industry that in the past has committed crimes against humanity, crimes against the planet, then you're basically telling them that they don't have to obey the law like the rest of us. You're basically saying it's open season. That's why deregulation is so unbelievably irresponsible. So anyway, this writer, Newkirk, comes up and he starts talking about Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy, Me song from 1971. And he explains that even though the song doesn't really mention race uh, from the What's Going On album, the idea that portrays a black Vietnam veteran comes back to his community that is still segregated and just re-envisioning the hell that all sorts of people of color endure. And they go on to talk about really what uh, Newkirk calls, refers to as the quote, the qualitative data of storytelling, of long circulated anecdotes and warnings within black communities of bad air and water, poison and cancer. But those, and this is a direct quote, but these, those warnings have been buttressed by study after study indicating that people of color face disproportionate risk from pollution and that polluting industries are often located in the middle of their communities, end quote. And it's all true. We don't have to look any further than several different examples that we're going to talk about. And they talk about researchers that were in the EPA's National Center for Environmental Assessment. And this was as the Trump EPA was dismantling the institutions, and the regulation. Um, but they released that study documenting that communities of color suffer more. Um, according to the study's authors, quote, results at national, state, and county scales all indicate that non-whites tend to be bur burdened disproportionately to whites, end quote, with regards to pollution. And that study focused on what's called particulate matter, which is basically microscopic particles or suspensions of, of solids and liquids that are in the air. They're, some are natural, some are man-made, and they are also air pollutants. And they talk about different kinds of particulates from this study. Anthropogenic particulates include the following, automobile fumes, smog, soot, oil, smoke, ash, and construction dust. Okay. Particulate matter was also called out as, quote, a known definite carcinogen, 
by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, as reported by the National Institute of Health. Um, and it's, the particular matter has been named by the EPA as a major contributor to many lung conditions, as well as heart attacks and, and definite premature deaths. And that was as reported um, by the EPA.gov. The pollutants been uh, linked to asthma prevalence, severity, low birth weight in newborns, high blood pressure, you name it. There was a 2016 study in Environment International, and, what, and that was as reported by ScienceDirect.com, and they discovered that exposure to pollutants, particular pollutants long-term, um, is also linked to racial segregation, and that basically racially segregated areas, in other words, communities of color, do suffer much higher levels of exposure. Okay. Um, there was a 2012 article in Environmental Health Perspectives, and they determined that, quote, overall levels of particulate matter exposure um, was higher in communities of color than for whites. Okay, and then they broke down what kinds of particulate matter was counted in the exposure. Um, and what they found was, for instance, Hispanics faced higher rates of chlorine exposure, um, and chronic chlorine inhalation has been linked to degrading cardiac function. And that was as reported by, again, the National Institute for Health. Um, the conclusions from the National Center for Environmental Assessment, which is part of the EPA, not only confirmed all this research, but they pushed it in a top public health journal. So again, there's nothing new here. A lot of the a lot of the uh, theories espoused in communities of color, well, the evidence was backed up in these studies, okay? They also talked about um, how fracking, these hydraulic fracturing oil wells, are often more likely to be situated in communities of color, and that researchers found higher, a higher presence of benzene and other similarly dangerous chemicals and that was also linked to the race of the community, and that was according to Marshall.edu. There were also big disparities between um, suspected in, in prevalence of lead poisoning, especially of children, and that was from uh, scholar.harvard.edu. Um, in my native St. Louis, we know that for a fact. There are certain zip codes that correlate with incredibly high levels of lead poisoning in the children. Um, and they're all in very low-income areas and communities of color. They correlate almost 100%. So we're really talking about environmental justice, not just environmental racism. Environmental racism is part of systemic racism, which we have to defeat. But in order to do that, we need environmental justice and justice in general. And, you know, the whole idea of environmental justice was really first talked about in the 1980s. There was a New Yorker article, and it was titled Fighting Environmental Racism in North Carolina. And there was a landmark study that basically displayed enormous disparities where certain facilities that disposed of 
hazardous wastes were situated. Guess what? Those facilities disposing of hazardous waste were not situated in affluent white suburbs, okay? They were in low-income black and uh, black communities and other communities of color. There's no guesswork here. And you think, well, why would these corporations do that? Because they know besides the economic disadvantages communities of color have been saddled with because of systemic racism, they have less money and less legal means to fight back. Okay. Now, there's been leaders in the environmental justice movement that have said that even groups as prestigious as, as publications from the United Nations and a lot of peer-reviewed journals, um, they have clearly all stated that, quote, environmental racism exists as the inverse of environmental justice. Okay. Well, pretty obvious, actually. But it's good that the United Nations saw that. Okay. So once again, you have a lot of people, especially privileged whites, that think racism only occurs when there is some sort of purposeful act where you, perp you intend to hurt a person of color or community of color because they're a person of color or a community of color. And it's this colorblindness that allows too many people to ignore the systemic racism that has pervaded our nation for hundreds of years. Well, now we have to end this. Okay. So let's look ahead. You know, it, you only have to look as far as your own backyard to see that landfills, hazardous waste dumps, uh, you know, smokestacks that that basically um, they, where they send radioactive particulates to, you know, through a process of cremation and they pump it back out into the atmosphere. Again, it doesn't happen in nice suburbs where a lot of Republican senators live. Not at all. They don't want that fight. But it happens in poor communities and communities of color. And so there is you know, a direct correlation between the effects of poverty and race. No doubt about it. <clears throat> but we need to look at it a little more in depth. The study's authors, and this was the, the study we're talking about, this landmark study um, on uh, environmental racism. The authors wrote, quote, a focus on poverty to the exclusion of race may be insufficient to meet the needs of all burdened populations, end quote. That's true. What they're basically saying is you can't disentangle race from poverty, okay? It, it all comes together, okay? And, and Trump under, with Scott Pruitt from the EPA, they basically tossed out hundreds of regulations, all right? 
So what little federal environmental justice work was going on, it was basically thrown out. Okay? They want to put a, they worked hard to put to cease any civil rights investigations. In fact, the Trump EPA, according to this article, quote, either replaced or fired quite a few of the scientists that had deep technical knowledge of this type of subject matter. So apparently the Trump EPA didn't just want yes men, they didn't want anybody who knew what was really going on to be in a position to blow the whistle. So they fired him. And they probably threatened them with, I don't know, some sort of charges they dare speak out. Okay. So Scott Pruitt did work very hard to dismantle the Clean Air Act. And this isn't just about air in particular. It's also about the right to clean water, too. Okay. So let's move on. There is a group called This Is What It Is. And they did quite a bit of, of, of work on racial and environmental justice and, again, sacrifice zones. So these sacrifice zones are places where corporate situates these dangerous repositories for pollution, for hazardous waste, you name it. Again, not situated in lily-white affluent suburbs. Instead, they're in communities of color and low-income communities. And the term sacrifice zone is accurate. They are sacrificing the lives of everyone who lives in that area. So they quoted Ibram X. Kendi. And apparently Kendi had a book titled How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the quote was, do nothing, climate policy is racist policy. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Um, and again, Kendi goes on to say that, quote, black, indigenous, and people of color and poverty are on the front lines of climate catastrophe because they so often live in sacrifice zones, areas that the powers that be have deemed appropriate for locating polluting sources in or nearby because the people who live there lack the political power to prevent it, end quote. It's exactly right. They pick communities where there is practically no ability to fight back. These polluters are the ultimate cowards. Now they give this group, this is what it is, they give some examples. Houston. Okay. In Houston, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Buller documented some 40 years ago that approximately 82% of solid waste in Houston was dumped in mostly black neighborhoods. Okay, what makes it worse is that the population of Houston is only approximately 25% black. That's pretty premeditated. Um, there were some other studies that confirmed, according to this group, that race remains, quote, the best predictor where commercial hazardous waste facilities are located, end quote. Now we have another, this is like the, the picture postcard for environmental racism, Standing Rock Reservation. It is a Native American reservation, and it is the scene of controversy and a protest and fight between um, this group called Trans, uh, Trans Energy, excuse me, I am very tired today, um, basically through fracking, 
it's a fight between the people of Standing Rock that are trying to stop what's called the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, the Dakota Access Pipeline, it, it would be bad enough if these new pipelines carried traditional oil, but they're not. They're carrying fracking, which is referred to also as tar sands, tar sands oil. Except the tar sands oil isn't an oil. Okay, I've written about this. It is a form, it's one of the most, one of the dirtiest forms of coal. And it's shot through these pipelines in a toxic soup that they refer to as fracking fluid. We don't know all that's in the fracking fluid because these corporations claim that the regulators and the people that live in the area have no right to know because they claim that the fracking fluid is, a, is protected under proprietary rights that they own this. They don't, but they claim it. The problem that's been documented by many scientists is that these, these, this tar sand is shot through these pipes, these pipelines, uh, with fracking fluid, this toxic soup at high pressure. And a lot of times these companies are using sub, uh, subpar steel. All it takes is for one, the tar sands oil is so hazardous. It's unlike oil that we know where if it gets into the water, we can try to find a way to clean it up. You can't from tar sands and you can't from the fracking fluid. It becomes impossible to separate out and it becomes extremely hazardous to the point where that water is ruined. There is no reclaiming it. And this Dakota Access Pipeline is going to go through um, Standing Rock Reservation and it's going to be situated right at the same point where their, their water supply is. So the Dakota Access Pipeline, give you a little, little background here. It's all about fracking. It was originally going to be routed through uh, North Dakota's capital city of Bismarck. But the white folk in Bismarck didn't like the idea. So an alternate route was decided upon, and this alternate route bordered the Standing Rock Native American Reservation, and it crossed, quote, crossed under the tribe's source of drinking water, which led to extensive protests by a people that call themselves the water protectors. You got to understand something. This is about their drinking water. They're on a Native American reservation. They're not part of North Dakota exactly. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So you have this going on, okay? And this is still about white supremacy. The Sierra Club's Hopkins um, was quoted the following in terms of what's happening with, for instance, these sacrifice zones, whether it's uh, Standing Rock or whether it's Houston or whether it's East St. Louis. Quote, we will never survive the climate crisis without ending white supremacy. Here's why. You can't have climate change without sacrifice zones, and you can't have sacrifice zones without disposable people, and you can't have disposable people without racism. That's true. And there's more. Uh, Hopkins also went on to say, and this is a direct quote, quote, the richest people need, the richest people need for white supremacy to remain 
I'm sorry, let me start over. The richest people need needs for white supremacy to remain invisible so they can continue to plunder our planet. They need those sacrifice zones. And the racism that justifies them are they'll have nowhere to put their trash and pollution. In this way, white supremacy serves to divide white working people from black working people. Today's one percenters are able to sacrifice whole communities using more or less the same methods the settlers used. By dividing people into racial categories and directing the worst of their abuse at the, at the people at the bottom of a manufactured racial hierarchy. End quote. It's very true. And Hopkins uh, explained that there is a term for this strategy. It's referred to as punching down. Don't you just love how corporate types come up with these pseudo-macho little terms? Instead of calling it poisoning people, they call mass poisoning, they call it punching down. So, again, more about these sacrifice zones. So now we have uh, Raynard Loki, as I mentioned earlier on, and he writes in the Independent Media Institute. And this was an article that published just two days ago, actually. Okay. And the... The headline is, quote, Sacrifice Zones, How People of Color Are Targets of Environmental Racism. And they call it Take Action Tuesday at Earth Food Life. He says it all. So, once again, these sacrifice zones are a creation and a byproduct of environmental racism. Okay? These are pollution hotspots. Nobody wants to live next to them. But unfortunately, they situate these dumps in communities that they know can't fight back. So Loki goes on. And one of the first things Loki says is he points out how both Black Lives Matter and the COVID-19 pandemic have one thing in common. They've highlighted how systemic racism, quote, how systemic racism disproportionately places danger and harm on low-income and minority populations, end quote. And it's true. And they do this, again, sacrifice zones. Okay. And sacrifice zones that have been designated by corporate and defended by their armies of corporate attorneys are a direct product of that same environmental racism. These are communities that can't afford to defend themselves They're so desperate for jobs, they're willing to put up with anything. They have weak laws. They don't protect their own. Corporate negligence. These are communities that have less access to health care. So if they ever sue a corporation for basically being poisoned, the corporate lawyers can just go into court and say, well, how do we know this just wasn't an aspect of them not having health care all along? It muddies the waters, and that's exactly what corporate wants. It plays in redlining is one of the um, tactics they use, okay? These are low property values because of redlining. Why are these areas redlined? Because of racism, white flight. There's, there, there's no mystery here, okay? I may sound redundant tonight, but that's because this is just, it's so obvious it's pathetic, okay? It just is. And... Um, you know, this is what we're dealing with. 
it's shameful, but that's what we have. And these people have no way to defend themselves. Okay? They just it's very difficult. And you know, what are we gonna do about this? You know? Well, there's a little bit of hope. Apparently President Biden recently created a White House Council on get this, environmental justice. Okay. Now my question to the Biden administration, and I'm hoping that this is for real. Will this Council on Environmental Justice actually fight for justice? Or will it just be another futile exercise in public relations? It's a legitimate question. I'm not trying to be unreasonable, but it's a legitimate question. We need to be asking this. So, sorry I'm talking kind of slowly tonight, guys. Uh, just this past January, one of the first things that President Biden did is he signed an executive order that, again, created this White House Council on Environmental Justice. And one of the things it's supposed to look at is the environmental impacts of systemic racism. To quote from the order, quote, we must deliver environmental justice in communities all across America. To secure an equitable economic future, the United States must ensure that environmental and economic justice are key considerations in how we govern, end quote. Now, there was another separate executive order uh, from WhiteHouse.gov, and this one directed federal agencies to prioritize racial equity in their, their task, in their work, and, it, and to incorporate racial and environmental justice across the entire federal government. Okay, it's a good start. Uh, it's going to have a lot of landmines because, let's face it, there are far too, members of, too many members of Congress some Democrats and practically all the Republicans that are going to fight this like crazy. And one Democrat that comes to mind that will also fight this is Joe Manchin from West Virginia. He has a clear conflict, conflict of interest. And one of people, I think somebody claimed that Manchin's coming around to being more reasonable on environmental issues, but we don't have time to wait for his majesty, nor do I care. As far as I'm concerned, when you've got politicians like Joe Manchin, who basically crafts on his own people in West Virginia, who stands in the way of getting rid of the filibuster, stands in the way of $15 an hour minimum wage, stands in the way of pollution controls, then the only thing that comes to mind regarding Joe Manchin and then Kirsten Cinema and several others is to, to fight his 15 words. My four words. We will primary you. We need to find some strong progressives, especially fiscal progressives, and primary mansion, primary cinema. Get rid of them. Set an example so that all the rest of the Democratic moderates are just, frankly, another term for cowards. Understand that the progressive wave is here. Get on board or get mowed down. And this, especially for this situation, communities are being poisoned. People are dying, and they're playing games. So I'm glad that President Biden came up with this White House Council on Environmental Justice. I, I hope they're sincere. The other thing 
But the problem with these with these actions, and that I was just starting to get to, is that when it's an executive order, when when the president is invited, another president can just reverse it. We need legislation, legislative action. We need laws. We need to re-regulate these polluting industries. And that means, yeah, these blue dog Dems that are getting in the way of a progressive agenda, they got to go. Primary them. Primary mansion, primary cinema, primary coon, prim- every single one of them. It wouldn't be that difficult. We can do it. Because the only thing Joe Manchin is doing is trying to be a power broker, nothing else. Now, Joe Biden also uh, has a $2 trillion infrastructure plan, which would also try to address long-term racial inequities. But now he's talking like he's willing to work with Republicans. Okay, fine. Personally, my attitude is the Republicans lost, we won. The Republicans have absolutely no intention of being reasonable on any of this. They're just trying to block everything. And the, we're in just two dire needs right now. We just need to mow them down, end the filibuster, and do what we need to do. But part of the $2 trillion infrastructure was some $20 billion, which is aimed to reconnect communities of color to economic opportunity. And that was reported by the New York Times, Biden Infrastructure Racial Equity Plan. Sounds good. The proposal includes funds to also, get this, to replace lead water pipes that have hurt a lot of babies in cities like Flint, Michigan. Okay? And also the proposal includes money to clean up environmental hazards that have harmed Hispanic and tribal communities. This sounds all good. Okay? This is far more progressive than I expected from Joe Biden. But we're not going to get it unless we're willing to fight for it and fight hard. So Hip Hop Caucus weighs in, and they're a nonprofit advocacy group, and they deal with issues relating to health care, education, and then social justice and environmental justice. And they launched a public petition demanding that Congress pass legislation which would protect communities of color from the health risks posed by environmental degradation. Uh, that, petition, that petition was co-sponsored by several other advocacy groups, including Progress America, Friends of the Earth Action, Coalition on Human Needs, Evergreen Action, and Progressive Reform Network. And again, we have Mike Phelan, who's spokesman for Progress America, and it's a powerfully shameful truth. Corporate polluters demand human sacrifices. And I would go a little further than what Mr. Phelan says, because in the eyes of corporate, in the eyes of the 1%, in the eyes of their armies of corporate attorneys, low-income people don't count as people. We're expendable. I really believe that these one percenters and their corporate attorneys really do see people of communities of color and uh, lower income communities at, in the same way that, as the Nazis when they use the term useless eaters. I truly do. There was an EPA report that I mentioned in 2004, uh, and this was reported 
again, by EPA. And the EPA in 04, again, 04, that's the George W. Bush administration, wrote that, quote, the solution to unequal protection lies in the realm of environmental justice for all Americans. No community, rich or poor, black or white, should be allowed to become a sacrifice zone, end quote. This came from the George W. Bush administration. To add to it more, Naomi Klein, activist and author, wrote in a 2014 book titled This Changes Everything, and she wrote that, quote, running an economy on energy sources that release poisons as an unavoidable part of their extraction and refining have always required sacrifice zones. Whole subsets of humanity categorized as less than fully human, which made their poisoning in the name of progress somehow acceptable. This is exactly in line with the statement I made about how the Third Reich considered anyone who was lower income or not white enough as a useless eater. Something to be used and then tossed. Now there was EPA's National Center for Environmental Assessment study in 18. That study was released in the American Journal of Public Health and it was called Disparities in Distribution of Particulate Matter Emission Sources by Race and Poverty Status. And again, the report confirmed that environmental racism is and remains a, quote, clear and present danger to people of color because they're the ones that are more likely to, to have these polluters in their backyards, okay? And the study found, documented, that people that live in these lower-income communities below the poverty line, uh, have a 35% higher burden, health burden, from particulate matter emissions than when compared to the overall U.S. population. Okay. The health burden uh, experienced by non-whites was 28% higher than the rest of the United States, and African Americans had a 54% higher burden. Those numbers are damning, and they should be. And again, the researchers in this major study, again, in 18, this was the Trump administration, they cited, quote, economic inequality and historic racism as major factors in the siting of facilities emitting particular pollution, end quote. Well, you can pretty much figure out why Trump had Pruitt fire those scientists. And it goes on to document there wasn't any, any guesswork here. Particulate, particulate pollution can cause numerous health problems, including heart attacks, irregular heartbeat, as, aggravated asthma, decreased lung function, um, even premature death. And um, they quoted Leslie Fields in this article, that is, in the Loki article, who is the direct, who in 18 was the director of the Environmental Justice Program at the Sierra Club. And Field said the following, quote, this report illustrates how people of color and people with limited means have been grossly taken advantage of by polluters who don't care about the misery they cause. The disadvantages that come with those health issues, like missing school, create a cycle of poverty and lack of access to opportunity that spans generations and shapes every part of the experience of being a person of color or low-income person in the United States, end quote. There was an article that in, uh, uh, um, excuse me, there was an article in a publication called Color Lines written by Ayana Bird, 
who, who uh, examined the study, and Bird writes the following, quote, the findings show that those in poverty had 1.35 times higher burden than did the overall population, and non-whites had 1.28 times higher burden. Blacks specifically had 1.54 times higher burden than did the overpopulation. This translates to a 54% increase for black people. Um, end quote. And Bird added, quote, that this idea of environmental racism, quote, has been called the new Jim Crow and continues to target black, Latinx, Native, Asian, and other communities of color, subjecting them to generations of poor health outcomes, end quote. Okay. There is cause for concern, most definitely. So once again, we have a little bit of hope because Biden's plan, at least as he wrote it, um, offers some hope. Okay, he budgeted money to fight this. But now Joe Biden needs every Democrat in Congress to fight for it. And he needs every Democrat to fight to end the filibuster as well and to end those cloture votes. Okay. And the author of this last piece, Maynard Loki, he's a writing fellow at the Independent Media Institute. Um, and he's also been a reporter, he's worked and published in many other journals, including Salon, Truthout, BillMoyers.com, Counterpunch, Echo Watch, and Truthdig. Okay. Now, there is a medical article now, and this was written by um, some third-year medical students at a major Oregon hospital named Olivia Glatt and Maytab Sal, and they documented the disproportionate impact of pollution on communities of color as a call to action for change. And this was written just this past January. The, the headline is Environmental Justice is Integral to Our Future, Unpacking Environmental Racism as a Framework for Change. Okay? And they talk about how the global pandemic, the reckoning on racism and the wildfires and everything that's going on brings everything to a boiling point. And when they talk about this common thread of injustice, they go on to make a statement that's very telling. Quote, it is clear that 2020 was the product of decades of systemic and societal inequities. Exactly right. I'll say it again. Everything that's going on, the wildfires, pan the pandemic, and the differential treatment in terms of receiving PPE, medical treatment, if you receive medical treatment, vaccines, and so on, the racism of our policing, and so on and so forth, that common thread of injustice, as they put it, quote, it is clear that 2020 was the product of decades of systemic and societal inequities. And they're right. They quote Benjamin Chavez on environmental racism. Chavez is a, a major environmental activist. And Chavez went on to say that environmental racism is, quote, racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color 
from leadership of the ecology movement, end quote. And it goes on, Chavez goes on to explain that the presence of these environmental toxins is basically in the backyards of communities of color, and these same communities, they don't, they don't get any opportunity to present any input because they're not at the table at all. And Chavez goes on to mention that he's hoping that, that, that the inclusion of minorities will basically become better, um, you know, hoping that Representative Deb Haland will become Secretary of Department of Interior, which she did. And she's the first, Ameri she's the first uh, Native American cabinet member, okay? And she understands environmental racism right up front. So here's hoping we have some friends in high places. But once again, the president can only do so much. Even if he writes a slew of executive orders, they can be all undone. We need the Democrats in Congress to do their job and to grow a spine and to grow some cojones, seriously. And any Democrats, because the, the makeup of Congress is so close, any Democrats, again, like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and some of the others that don't want to get on the progressive agenda, we need to primary them and push them out of office. We don't have time for their nonsense. And just the idea of sacrifice zones is something that's evil. And once again, there are several more examples. Okay? Newark, New Jersey. There, were, there are glue, plastic, and leather factories and sewage processing and fat rendering facilities um, in areas that are the southward and ironbound communities. Okay? And the people in these areas have higher rates of asthma and lung cancer. South Ward is 3% white, but the state of New Jersey is 59% white. That's a lot right there. Okay, in Louisiana, we've talked about Cancer Rally before on the show. Sorry if I'm taking long pauses, guys. Like President Biden, I'm occasionally a stutterer. Bear with me. In Louisiana, there's an area called Cancer Alley. And it is located in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And it has an abnormal amount of cancer. And what's situated there? An entire host of factories spewing out poisons into the air and water. We have Flint, Michigan, who ignored the lead in the drinking water for months. And again, majority black. And we have the water pollution problem at Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Um, which, again, the Dakota Access Pipeline endangers the drinking water of the people there. There was a spill of a similar pipeline uh, in the Kalamazoo River. Uh, keep in mind, the Dakota Access Pipeline would cross the Missouri River as well, which is Standing Rock's reservation's only water supply. So you can understand why these people are upset. It's not like they have a, a waterworks that will come to bat for them, okay? You have Eugene, Oregon, the predominant Latino and low-income residents. They're exposed to some 99% of Eugene's air toxins, 
They have double the rate of childhood asthma compared to the, the, the average population. The EPA recently found that Eugene Lane's Regional Air Protection Agency discriminated against the residents there, uh, especially uh, basically because they had inadequate air monitoring and they didn't really involve the community. There wasn't a way to provide complaints except in English, and you have, you know, basically a lot of residents there were English as their second language. So again, Hop Hopkins, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for the Sierra Club, quoted as saying, quote, you can't have climate change without sacrifice zones. You can't have sacrifice zones without disposable people. And you can't have disposable people without racism. Okay. So we're, they go on to talk about the role of healthcare as well. Healthcare has a long history of racism. Okay. Um, healthcare and medicine's been involved in eugenics, which is deciding which people can live and which can die based on their genetic background. It's evil. Um, there were the Tuskegee syphilis trials. Okay, so there's lots of structural racism built into the medical establishment. Okay. There was a Harvard study that linked a single microgram per cubic meter increase in pollution to an 8% increase in mortality from COVID-19. And the researchers think that this helps, is helping to explain how COVID is disproportionately killing more black and Hispanic Americans than whites, at least in part. Okay, so there are some things we can do. We can call, how can we part, be part of the solution, especially in terms of healthcare? According to these medical students, they want more sustainability within healthcare, okay? They want to pursue research and education. They want to advocate, all right? So it goes on. Now we're going to move on to the last part of this show. It's kind of a long one tonight. In the Intercept, there's a piece on a slap suit against um, not only the Standing Rock activists, but Unicorn Riot's coverage of Standing Rock. And this is a piece written by Aileen Brown and Sam Richards for The Intercept. Uh, it was published uh, just this past week on April 3rd. Okay. So members of, first of all, Unicorn Riot is a non-for-profit kind of alternative news organization. They do a lot of good work. They're composed of basically 12 people. And yet this corporation had to put all the resources against these 12 people. Um, so Unicorn Riot's been covering Standing Rock far better than the mainstream, the mainstream corporate news. They've been there. They've been encamped with them. Um, and they are really not just writing, but they're recording. They're, there's video. And so basically, the early April, Unicorn Riot received a subpoena. And this was from the uh, tar sands pipeline giant Energy Transfer is the name. And Energy Transfer is demanding a whole host of documents, including news gathering materials that would identify sources. 
And to people that don't understand why this is so important to journalists, sometimes you get sources that, that basically will do it anonymously. And maybe a court order will out them, but the fact is if you don't have a way to protect your sources, it's much harder to gather a story together. So this subpoena has been the product of a year-long legal effort, an aggressive effort, by Energy Transfer. They were faced with the Standing Rock movement, which basically these people came to standing, the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, and they called themselves water protectors because, once again, the pipeline can potentially endanger their drinking water. That's simple. And there's been other, they're not spills, there's been other pipelines that have broken and damaged a lot of water. And this tribe wants to protect their drinking water from contamination. Keep in mind, this locale to go through the reservation, albeit underground, was the alternative route. Originally, it was going to go through Bismarck, but the white folks there didn't want it. And so it was moved to Standing Rock. So basically, the white government of North Dakota viewed Standing Rock Sioux Reservation as a disposable community. No shock there. Okay? So the pipeline community, Energy Transfer, tried to paint not only the Standing Rock movement, but Unicorn Riot as this vast, uh, you know, the phrase, you know, far right-wing conspiracy. Well, they're trying to say it's a far left-wing conspiracy, okay? And what are they doing? They're trying to damage energy transfer. Energy transfer is demanding that the media group Unicorn Riot turn over any documents, okay, any documents, any video, audio, even rough drafts of articles, emails, communicates everything related to the firm and its pipeline. They don't have a right to all that, but that's what they're demanding. And the subpoena also wanted information about um, Unicorn Riot's nonprofit structure, their social media accounts, names of employees, volunteers, supporters, and so on and so forth. Um, there was one individual from Unicorn Riot, a man named uh, Nico Giordiades, um, who was one of the Unicorn Riot reporters covering this, and he was separately subpoenaed. Now, they do have some legal help. Trevor Tim, who is executive director of the Freedom of Press Foundation, has come to their aid. Lord knows they need a lot more than that. And, excuse me, and Tim was saying, quote, this subpoena is outrageous and strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. It should be thrown out immediately. And he goes on to say, the, quote, the breadth of the subpoena is striking, not only encompassing things like story drafts and internal communications, but also the personal information of Unicorn Riot's donors. The judge should see this for what it is, a menacing attempt to intimidate a news outlet whose only crime is being critical of the company. It should be thrown out immediately, end quote. And Unicorn Riot has said they're going to contest the subpoena, as well they should. Huh? And um, that's what they told the, the, um, uh, the intercepts. In fact, Unicorn Riot um, sent a statement to the, Uni to the Intercept, quote, we intend to vigorously defend our sources and our First Amendment protected activity, end quote. 
It should be noted, according to the intercept, energy transfer, neither energy transfer nor their attorneys responded to a request for comment. Now, why are they after this small media outlet of 12 people? Because Unicorn Riot brought some exposure, and it was an exposure that they could whitewash like they do in these uh, mainstream corporate media. So the Standing Rock protests have been going on for months, and Unicorn Riot developed a reputation. They had, they had long live streams. They had video news reports, public information requests, and they basically created an evidence stream that was enormous, but it also included a lot of illegitimate tactics used by law enforcement and used by energy transfer. Okay. So law enforcement officials, uh, in other words, cops in Standing Rock, they tended to see unicorn riot, according to the intercept, that is, um, they chose to see the journalists as members of a movement, okay, which in turn subjected them to arrest. And that's what a lot of people don't understand as well. Um, and that was covered in 2016, arrest of journalists at Standing Rock, test the boundaries of the First Amendment. If you're a journalist of any type and you're covering a protest, if the cops decide to, to say that you're part of the movement, okay, that you are, um, you know, part of it, then that's all the excuse allegedly they need to arrest you to get around that First Amendment protection. It happened in Ferguson. You know, even journalists from Fox were arrested in Ferguson and pounded on. So what is so dangerous about Unicorn Riot? They do solid work. They've served as witness. Keep in mind, Energy Transfer has some 13,000 employees as documented. Okay? Uh, they have an army of corporate attorneys and probably more money than God. Unicorn Riot, I take that back. I said they have a dozen members. They have slightly less than a dozen members. Okay? And they're supported by private donations from individuals. I guarantee you the reporters covering for Unicorn Riot are probably, I doubt they're making minimum wage. They're doing because it's the right thing to do. Um, and Energy Transfer reported nearly $5 billion in revenue in 2019. Okay. Talk about a David and Goliath type situation. This slap suit is meant to chill speech. Okay. The idea of serving Unicorn Riot with all these subpoenas, as well as some officials with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, is to intimidate them, to basically bog them down with so many legal bills that they have to fold. Because, again, the corporate attorneys know they don't have a case. Now, it gets worse than this. Just when you think it couldn't get worse, it does. Now, energy transfer were also, they were also trying to go further than just a slap suit, a civil lawsuit, okay? And it's obvious that, yes, those subpoenas, uh, according to staff attorney Natalie Sergovia, um, 
and she issued a statement according to waterprotectorlegal.org. She said, quote, an energy transfer, quote, is on a fishing expedition for information that can lend credence to their ill-founded notion that nonprofit organizations and water protectors seeking to protect human rights and the earth for future generations were allegedly engaged in illicit activity. Segovia goes on to say, in reality, quote, in reality, it is ETP, okay, energy transfer partners, in other words, and large corporations that break the law with impunity, end quote. That's true. The subpoenas were also part of a follow-up. Um, energy transfer partners, get this, in 2017, they filed a racketeering, a federal racketeering lawsuit, okay, against, against Standing Rock and um, Unicorn Riot. And, well, what it says here is that um, Energy Transfers filed a federal racketeering lawsuit in 2017 against a range of defendants. Now, and, and some of the defendants included environmental groups such as Greenpeace, um, Bank Track, which BankTrack's a nonprofit that tries to pressure banks to stop financing uh, harmful environmental activity, and several, and they also um, work with several individual pipeline opponents. Okay, now here's the question: Since when do corporations file federal criminal uh, racketeering lawsuits, otherwise known as RICO? Isn't that the responsibility of the Department of Justice or the local prosecutor? Since when do private attorneys do that? They don't. Now, the federal complaint was still filed, and uh, Energy Transfer tried to claim that thousands of people came to the camps at the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, and they came because Greenpeace conducted a misinformation campaign. And... Um, That really wasn't the case. There was quite a bit of evidence, including a, um, a public record, that clearly showed that water protectors were actually coming together by calls from help, for help that were, were issued by tribal members from the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, as well as the publication of video footage, which spoke for itself. And this was footage that, among other things, showed the Dakota Access pipeline security contractors um, pounding on pipeline opponents, including, you know, sicking vicious dogs on them. I mean, shades of Jim Crow in the Deep South. Um, and so they're claiming that this misinformation campaign, you know, the green teeth, the people made phone calls, okay, and they talked to people about this. This was the foundation for their... RICO allegation, their racketeering allegation against these people. Again, since when does a criminal make phone calls and ask for help? I mean, if someone from the opposition slandered or defamed another party, that would be a civil suit, not one for, not a criminal suit for the feds to enter. Energy transfer claimed that they incurred $300 million in damages um, due to the protests and Unicorn Riot's uh, uh, coverage, among other things, Greenpeace's involvement. And when you factor that in 
with penalties, the amount could triple to almost a billion dollars. And that would be what Energy Transfer is claiming that, that the amount of damage they incurred. And this was under the federal law called the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, known as RICO. How is this a RICO violation? Okay. Well, here's what happened. The judge dismissed the RICO case in 2019. Okay. And it was quite clear, and this was uh, published by Greenpeace, um, energy transfers claims of a RICO violation, the judge clearly said, quote, donating to people whose cause you support does not create a RICO enterprise. Posting articles written by people with similar beliefs does not create a RICO enterprise. Pretty clear, isn't it? Guess what? A week after the judge tossed it out, energy transfer came right back, filed a new complaint against Greenpeace in a North Dakota district court locally. And this new case, basically the same as the old case, minus the RICO claims. But instead, they claimed that there was trespassing and property-based claims. And, you know, they're trying, they're basically grasping at straws because they don't have a case. Greenpeace organizer Charles Brown, along with um, Water Protector Cody Hong Kristen, Crystal Tubal, issued a quote. Quote, the suit was brought to chill Greenpeace's speech, drain our resources, and intimidate anyone who speaks out against pipeline projects. Oh, this was a, I'm sorry, this was a, um, a, a quote issued by Greenpeace Deputy General Counsel Deepa Padmabana. I'm killing the name, I'm sorry. So according to Greenpeace Deputy General Counsel, quote, the suit was brought to chill Greenpeace's speech, drain our resources, and intimidate anyone who speaks out against pipeline projects. We've been fighting this collapse suit for many years and will continue to fight this battle because it's important for all individuals and groups engaged in advocacy work. And it is. The fact that energy transfer tried to push federal criminal charges because that's what the RICO Act is, against these people. I'm sorry, but every attorney that was involved in that filing, in my opinion, should be disbarred. They abused their, their license. So, again, this latest complaint by Energy Transfer, their latest legal attack, again, they've issued a bunch of subpoenas, including individuals who aren't actually listed as defendants. And among those subpoenas, there are groups that provide legal services to people facing criminal charges during Sandy Rock. So they're going, they're going after, energy transfer is going after the lawyers that are defending people that are facing criminal charges, albeit probably bogus, during the Standing Rock protest. And that included the Water Protector Legal Collective and the Freshet Collective as well as the Ruckus Society and the Indigenous People Power Project. All these groups promote nonviolent direct action. They were subpoenaed as well. Officials that were involved in inspecting the pipeline route for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, including somebody named Dr. Kelly Morgan, who's an archaeologist for the tribe, and Tim Mentz, who's the uh, tribe's uh, earlier tribal historic preservation officer, 
and who had key testimony, they were also subpoenaed. Okay? So, you know, once again, Unicorn Riot has had to um, kind of devote a lot of time and limited resources to decide how to handle this overreaching subpoena, this abuse of the legal process. Um, and this is just all part of the corporate game. Okay. Um, the water protective, I'm sorry, the water protector legal collective subpoena um, went so far as to request communications with members of the press. Um, and they said, quote, this is a clear attempt to inhibit communication by an advocacy organization with the, with the press in violation of the WPLC, the Water Protector Legal Collective, First Amendment rights under the Constitution. Okay? And then you also have, let's see now, I missed something here. This is what's going on, all right? So I'm going to tie this up now. We've talked about sacrifice zones, which are just dumping grounds and areas where the people who reside there are considered disposable. And for no reason except their identity, their race, their economic level. And this is the true evil. And you see corporate attorneys, armies of them, their energy transfer going after the people that are defending protesters, that are peaceably protesting. Their energy transfer is going after Unicorn Riot, which is a media group reporting on what's happening and just trying to kill it all. They know they don't have a case. But that's why there's such sweeping overreach. Okay. You know, basically, what was the saying? If, if your only tool is a hammer, then everything in front of you looks like a nail. So kind of tying it all together, okay, because as, as a Jew myself, I lost family in the Holocaust as well. So on this day, Holocaust Memorial Day, the dialogue about disposable people is particularly poignant. It can't be understated that during the reign of the Third Reich, one of the most evil societies in history, there were participants, among which the participants were corporate forces, big banks, and indifferent bigots who led the way to destroy these disposable people once any energy for work had been drained out of them. They were useless eaters in the rich's eyes, the eyes of the rich, that is. And we're reliving it all over again. So when I say never again, as a Jew, I am saying that when I say never again, that is a commandment for me to defend Black Lives Matter, to defend my brothers and sisters of color, no matter who they are. This show will always, always shed light on the environmental racist in our society. And we will always push the powers that be 
to have true justice, including environmental justice. So, as I say, never again, keep in mind, just as it was 80 years ago, we're dealing with something very similar now. And it's time for all of us to come together and say that nobody is a useless eater. And that's the show for tonight. This is Janine Moloff. Good night and God bless.